Before we begin our conversation, quick update on a show in Los Angeles. Friday, October 13th, Spanish sound artist and composer Francisco Lopez returns to LA after more than two decades, bringing an intense and immersive audio experience, Virtuoral Electro Mechanics, to a blindfolded audience in the theater at 2220 Arts and Archives. Also, Irish audiovisual artist Barbara Ellison makes her LA debut with Cyber Songs, a phantasmic transhuman song cycle for human-like computer voices and computer-like patterns with human voice. And opening the evening is Hive Mind, the seismic glacial analog devastations of Grey Holger. That's me. Ticket link is in the description. You're listening to Noise Extra. I'm Grey Holger, here with my co-host Mike Connolly. Hello. And our guest today, Lasse Marhog. Hello. Hello, Lasse. Hey. <laughs> Welcome to the show. We've been trying to schedule this uh, for a while, and finally schedules lined up, and we get to, uh, we get to talk to you. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry I've been difficult. It's not because I didn't want to, but just never worked out. <laughs> I'm sorry. And I realized you had another Norwegian before me. I was, I'm the second Norwegian, I think. You, have the, you had Mortis, and then he beat me to it. I'm like, <laughs> Yes, we were very excited to talk to you today. And then, yes, side note, Tara is not on today's episode because she is stuck in jury duty, as seems to happen to her about once a year. But we will plow through because, yes, we are yeah, excited to talk to you every today. Time there, every time there's Norwegian on the show, it's just, I got jury duty. I'm sorry. I can't come. <laughs> I'm out. Yeah. I'm out. We don't want to talk to those Norwegians. But, no, we're definitely excited. And somebody who has been active in noise since the early 90s and very active up until this day. So let's go ahead and look back at those years, at those early days of yours starting in noise in Norway. Yeah. How did it all happen for you? That's a good question. I don't know. I think I'm an absolute freak of nature for coming into noise because you may, as you may know, I'm from Norway is quite remote to begin with. It's not a big noise scene and it's on, on top of Europe. And I'm from the north of Norway, even. I'm from above the Arctic Circle. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. And this is where I am now, right now, actually. Ah, oh, wow. How? Okay. Not only is Norway isolated, you're even extra isolated. Pre-noise, I just want to know what was it like growing up there just as a kid? Okay. That's just, I don't think we've ever talked to anyone who's lived above the Arctic Circle. <laughs> no, when you grow up, whatever you grow up, that's your normal. So I didn't really think it was anything special growing up here, but I've come to realize later traveling the world that yeah it's a bit it's a bit extreme it's not no i'm i i grew up in a rural quite remote area in northern norway that's it's about it was about 6 hours north of the arctic circle 6 hours drive and you had to take take a ferry or a boat to get to where i was so you couldn't drive there because it was they made they had a tunnel made later i just grew up quite isolated. So if I needed, we needed to go to town, I would have to get on a boat for three hours. And actually when, I, when my mom gave birth to me, she had to get on a boat for three hours. To what? Get that yeah. is nuts. <laughs> so this was an area of about 4,000 people, but it was really big. So 
it was, was it was really how to say free upbringing in my class there were we were 11 we were 11 kids in my class my nearest friend was like five six kilometers away from me we lived on an, an island and i shot my air rifles and drove my unregistered moped and just did whatever i want and so there was nothing there for in terms of art and culture and concerts absolutely nothing wow and so you had 11 students in your class was that for your entire time up there you really only interacted with such a, ha- a small handful of people your age when we in that area was a lot of small schools when we went to high school then I had to take a bus for 45 minutes and then so that was centralized and then there was a class of 25 or something like that. Were there, so you said there wasn't met art, concerts, stuff like that up there, but was that completely zero or was there ever anything that came remotely close to you? Completely zero. Completely, absolute zero. Yep. Did you know that Manowar recently played in the Arctic Circle a few years ago? I did not know that. Yeah, the, <laughs> yes, they actually did. And I saw footage of it and it's amazing. Oh, okay. But, That's cool. But, <laughs> so your entire upbringing is in this isolated island, almost as far north as you can get. Yeah. How the hell did you discover? At first, I believe your path starts with metal, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, if you grew up in if you grew up in the eighties in rural Norway, there were two choices: either the pop music or uh, metal. So there was two choices, and so I chose metal because it had an energy. It had it was exciting. It it offered something else. It was like another world. So I chose metal. And there was a few metal heads that I would connect to. There was a few guys who who lived still half an hour away, but they had destruction T-shirts or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> And, and were, did you, how did you acquire anything? Were you doing mail order? And how did you actually find out about stuff? As I said, I, there's, there was a town that you took a boat and then there was a record store. So I would go there and I would just plow through the, the bins and with anything that had some kind of monster on, on the cover, I would, just, I would get. So I grew up with, with heavy metal and then I did a normal progression because that was when Heavy metal turned to thrash metal, and thrash metal turned to death metal, and, and I. But then I got a like this Norwegian sort of heavy metal magazine. It was like a fan scene, but it, it had a classified section with, and then and there's somebody advertised for being pen pals. And the first person I wrote to was Bård Faust, who was the. You are <laughs> kidding! Wow, it was the first person you wrote to. Yeah. He was the, so I just wrote to him saying, hey, I like this stuff. I like this uh, metal stuff. And he just wrote right back. And then I started writing letters to all these guys who later became the Norwegian black metal scene. This was when they were still death metal. So they, yeah. So this was 89, 88, 89, 90. They were still death metal. So I started writing to them and then doing phone calls. And through that, I just, it, open the whole world because I started getting fan scenes and demo tapes. I started tape trading and I just went for it. It was, and it was, none of my friends were into it. Like we, like I had friends who liked heavy metal, trash metal, but then Slayer came and they thought it was a bit extreme. And I wanted to go further because then I had discovered Napalm Death and bands like that. 
and just I just absolutely loved it. So death metal was definitely something for me. And I got in touch with that scene, started tape trading, being in touch with all those people. And they all, most of them became what you now know as the, the infamous Norwegian black metal scene. Oh, wow. That's so incredible. And I feel like going into town, taking three hours to get to the record store, <laughs> the, the effort that took must have affected your relationship with what you bought there, what you got there, because it was this true journey. And so when you got the records or whatever you bought that day, you really lived with it because it took you this entire, it took you three hours to get there. So that must have affected how you listened yeah. to this stuff. Absolutely. And I was, you know, I discovered even before the metal that I liked weird things. And, you know, I remember in, when I was six, I got this comic book of, of, with horror, horror comics. There was this comic book of, there was, it was actually Superman. It was a Jack Kirby comic, but it had all like the werewolf man and Dracula and all these, these classic monster figures. And I just loved that. I was six and I and just became obsessed with anything that's strange and weird. So I had that creative and, and distaste for, for all things unusual, which is completely out of my environment. But I, I found that early on. So I loved sup superhero movies, uh, comic books, and I liked, uh, liked horror movies, science fiction. And this was the, the time of, of VHS. So you could, you, you'd have to rent it. So I just became obsessed with that and death metal and, and that extreme metal completely was just perfect. It was, yeah, I was like, wow, I've come home. I, I love this. I love this. And especially the, those early, when, when there were demo tapes and those bands didn't really know how to record things and it was masked by oh, yeah. the yeah, absurd of the cassette tape and five generations in, everything sounds great. <laughs> I also very soon discovered industrial music, like almost like when you're 15 years old, two months is it's an eternity, but you, you just obsessed. Yeah. But for me, everything was through the mail. I started writing to people outside of Norway, all over the world. So I would get, I would say I would get mail, something in the mail every day. Every day something would arrive, like a tape or a fanzine or a letter or something. And I would, and I would write to everybody, that every address, and just order anything, tape trade, and just write to people. Because you can do that. And it was, it was what the internet is now, you could do through the mails. So I spent every, absolutely every money I got for postage <laughs> and, and going to the bank and, and having, ordering US dollars. And, and you also had these reply coupons called IRC, that international reply coupons. I would get those. And the people at, the, at this was rural Norway, in Norway. So the people at the post office, they had no idea what it was, but they found that there was such a thing that they would order it. And I would send those to, to, to bands to get a reply. So. Oh, that's so great. And like you said, it's similar to what obviously people use the internet for now, but I think the big difference about what you were doing back then, especially in the eighties is the lack of instant gratification while you were getting stuff in the mail every day, when you wrote someone a letter, it was still going to take time to get there. It's still going to take time to reply. So you're, you're constantly catching up, but also the lack of distraction by when you communicate through phones or the internet, you're sitting in this, on this thing that you could also look at a million other things and get distracted and move on. Whereas when you're focused in your isolated home as a teenager, writing letters and getting zines, 
you're just living in that world 24 hours a day without any sort of extra distraction, which I think is a difference. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Because everything happened through the mail. So I would write to people, but it would still take two, three weeks before I got right. a reply. So it, it, it set this sort of pace to how you do things. You, you don't get that immediate response of social media and the internet. So that was good. I think a lot of the people you probably talked about who came out in the 80s and 90s, they're used to, okay, it takes time. You have to, you have to mean it. You have to take your time. I, I was leaving a, almost like a double life because I had my friends. They weren't into that. So I would go with them and we would drive our mopeds and we would shoot air rifles and we would make Molotov cocktails in the forest. Shit like that. And we would go out with boats and rowing and it was pretty free and some pretty intense and crazy characters. It was a wild, it was a wild rural place. But I would do that. I would go also back to my room and I would just be sitting there listening to death metal demos and grindcore and pouring over fan scenes and just reading everything and just memorizing it and just obsessing about all this music and all this stuff that it was like a separate world. And I didn't mix the two. My friends knew I, I liked the weird, something was weird, but I just kept it separate. Like I didn't say anything. I didn't show it. I just, and I started making my own fan scenes. And eventually I started making my noise music and I didn't show it to anybody. It was like a private thing. It was just something I did in my room when I weren't out with my friends. It was like, it was two words. So when you started making noise, was this under the name Herb Mullen? Was this your first project or did you, when you started packaging or did, did you have any other designs or no, any I other had, projects? Before? I had a bunch. I had a bunch of names and I would change it every week. So I was just <laughs> like, yeah, another project. And I would, but I started making noise because I didn't have anybody to play grindcore with. I wanted to play grindcore or noisecore or something like that. And I had some friends and they had a thrash metal band. Thrash metal, that wasn't cool in 88. It was cool in 86 or 85. So I, and they asked me to join them as a singer, but I, I refused. And so I wanted to do noisecore and grindcore, but I didn't have anybody to play with. So I thought, how, how can I do this? by myself how can i how can i because i really like noisy distorted stuff so how do i do that so i figured i could actually make it with my home stereo i could i had uh, the ghetto blaster tape recorder and i could just scream into the built-in microphone and just hit the pause button really fast it's like instant masana and so that that was my early stuff and I, but i would change the project names for and i didn't keep i didn't keep the tape sometimes i would make recording or make a cover and I would just send it off one copy and then not think about it. And then, so that I'm missing a, a lot of my early uh, tapes. I don't have much of it. I, later on, I'd realized, oh, you have to keep this shit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so you said you got an in industrial pretty quickly after getting deep into the death metal and black metal underground. How did that happen and what were some of the stuff what were some of the projects that you discovered early on? Throbbing Gristle, for sure, because that was quite easy to get. So that was a name that popped up. And also like Leibach and Coil. I got through some of my metal friends, in, like a guy from Ulver, he introduced me to Coil. And I, in, in the sort of underground network, you, noise is really close. If you go to Grindcore to Noisecore, then noise music is right there. So I think somebody in Germany 
it might have been the guy from G Horsturts. I think he sent he made me a tape of Mersbau and Hiju Kaidan. Wow. And then <laughs> that 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 was like year zero. After that that obliterated everything. Yeah. Like death metal is nothing. And industrial music, fine. Yeah, but this was it was like it's like a movie at this portal opening and you just, well, I'm walking in there and I'm staying. That's for me. <laughs> <laughs> So I was, in, I knew I had arrived at that point because it had qualities, noise music, that type of noise music had qualities. It didn't, that the other stuff didn't have because death metal was always about something. It was always, and it, it was, had all these, how do you say, it came with some baggage and noise just seemed, this is perfect because it's just pure sound and you can listen to it and it's. It's different every time, and you can hear things that you can't hear. Noise music isn't trying to, it is just about sound. And I, I found that absolutely uh, fascinating. It's funny to look back on some of your releases early on because you can see the grindcore, noisecore influence on it, like the Delirium Acutum tape, which has 738 yeah. songs on it. <laughs> <laughs> That's how many times I pressed the pause button. Yeah, because and that was at all those noisecore bands. I think like Anal Cunt had a seven inch that was five thousand songs. It's things like that. So a, a lot of my early stuff, like everybody, is quite juvenile and has really is is a kid in his bedroom type of humor, and that's it's normal. It's me trying to figure out all this stuff and obsessing and. Also, at that time, when you did stuff, you felt alone when you sent the tape out. You, you never, that would, this was before Discogs or anything. You didn't think they would end up online 30 years later. Like the void. It just is going to exist, and then the handful of people that get the tape get it, and that is the end of that. Cut to exactly 30 years later, we're now doing a weekly podcast <laughs> about these things. So who yeah. could have ever predicted that? Now... <laughs> Gray mentioned her Mullen, and that seemed to be the moniker that did stick for a while. And there is a good amount yeah. of releases under that name, which, of course, we love as being true crime aficionados over here. Was that something you were interested in at the time? Of course. When you're 16, of course you're interested in serial killers. And this was before the internet, so it wasn't. it was information that you had to dig for. You have to search it out. And I was interested at that time in anything that was strange and weird and extreme and, and horror and death and all that stuff, of course, you're interested in it. But the reason her Merlin stuck a, f a few years, because I think I was invited to do a, like a, a CD compilation in Germany with that project. So that's okay. But it could have been five other names. So it was just a random accidental thing. That's when that ended up sticking. Who did you start getting in contact with in those early days when you first started getting into pure noise, who were some of the people and labels that you started writing in those first, in that first couple months or that first year of really getting into it? Hard to say who was first of the, a lot of people who aren't here anymore. Like I mentioned G. Hersturz and they disappeared and they were really great. And it was a bunch of other like tape traders and, and stuff like that. I don't think I got Try to remember. I think, you know, when I, I moved away from the north, I moved south in 1993. I moved to Trondheim, and that's when I started meeting actual people. <laughs> and 
And and I think that's when I started to get more. It was I, I, I had spent five years in my bedroom making tapes, and then suddenly I got to meet other people who were doing uh, similar things, and that escalated. I started going to to shows, and I started writing even more. And eventually, I started my own label, and I did that the Merspau split in like nineteen ninety five, I think. Right, and yeah, the split seven inch. Yeah, yeah the split yeah, seven yeah. inch. And because yeah. that's what you did in those days. You'd write to Masami Akita and he'd send you a dat tape. <laughs> like, was, I think it was like two weeks after I wrote him. Here's the master. <laughs> like, that's so great. And you'd also get in contact with Marco Corbelli at a certain point as well? Yeah, that, yeah, he was an early one. He was doing, well, Marco Corbelli and Vertam, Marco De Plano, Depla. Also an Italian. We were in touch really like 92, I think. It's hard to remember now who, who came at what time. You mentioned letter writing, but were you also using the other great uh, 90s communication form, the fax, back then? Later on, yes. Later on, I did. I bought a secondhand fax machine. <laughs> who were you faxing with? Who, I'm trying to remember. Who did I fax to? That's a good question. Ah. Uh, I can't remember, but I knew I faxed a bunch of people and it was a great, it was fantastic. I started using the fax machine to make artworks because you could, I could, you could use it as a copier also. And then if you hold, if you held the paper when it made a copy, it would just make these long stretches of weird black. I made a lot of my, a lot of my uh, artwork is made with the abusing a fax machine. Like the, the tape I did with Macronympha Monster, that's all photos going through the fax machine is the new forms of free entertainment collaboration split you did with ob also fax machine yeah. art yeah uh, yeah that that might be true yeah that, yeah so i started getting in touch with the, the japanese artists like ob masami akita government alpha and hiroshi hasegawa of cccc and astro and i started writing to to all these people they were all right back and and then some people you connected better to than others you know. So the first release on Jazz Assen being the Mertzbau split with yourself, what, how did that fuel the label to, to keep going? Did you, was, when you get a, got a taste of running a label and putting out music by someone else, how did that? Yeah, it sold out in weeks. Like I made 550 copies and like, you know, six weeks later, they were basically gone. Like I, people would order like 50 copies, a hundred copies, and I sent them out. I got money from some people, but I don't think I got money from everybody. But I financed my, my label because I worked at the factory at this time. So I would do this night shift, this overtime, and the money was really good. So in a, you know, a couple of weeks, I would have n enough money to do another seven inch or a CD. That's great. And is TWR at the same time or is it, or is that before? That was, that was before. Yeah, right. I think okay, around yeah. 90, 93 or 94, I'd realized I need to organize this stuff. I need to have it be a label and have it under a kind of moniker. And the R, which I think was Tidal Wave Recycling, something. I started that and then just has in you know, a couple of years apart, I think. And I ran both of them throughout the 90s. Yeah, absolutely. You put out that great Mersbau CD. I love the CD on Jazz Sass, and I always love the 
title Tapestry of Lights. I like when he has these strange titles. And that one is just a strange one too because it's sort of near the end of the analog era or at least the the 90s era. And it, it sits in a really strange place in the discography. There's something about that CD I always come back to. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. With Merzbau, you, you need a bit of time before you can see the era. When you're in the middle of it, you don't really right. realize. Yeah, you, you know, five years on, you go, oh, wow, he, you know, that was what he was doing. And then you see which ones are special. And when... You know, when, when Neurology and Pulse Demon came out, or, or Noise Embryo wasn't an instant classic. It was just one of many that came at that time. But now it's it's one of the pinnacles of early 90s noise music. But Absolutely. at that time, you, you don't know. So yeah, I, I, but I, that's my favorite Merzbau era anyway, the, like 91 to 96. Oh yeah, forever. Now you said you started seeing shows when you moved south. What were some shows you saw and what was in your estimation the first noise show you saw? Good question. I saw a bunch of metal and punk stuff. I, I, we moved to Trondheim and I would see, I would go to anything, punk, hardcore, extreme metal. So that, that was great. But I think the first time I saw something that was out of the ordinary concert format was with the Norwegian artist Death Prod. If you maybe know him, Death Prod. He did this this show where it was at this, it was at the Art Academy, uh, but it was like in this big hall and the audience were asked to wait outside. And then we would be let in and he would be behind like a bunch of sheets in the dark. And he had a couple of other guys and they played in near darkness. And then in the middle of the show, there was this slideshow of, car crash images just like for five minutes and then the music continued after that in the dark and then there was no interactions with the audience it was just this thing that you walked into it was really long slow and dark i think that was the first time i saw something that wasn't like a, a band or somebody on stage and that was quite special you will put out what one of the classic Last Say Marhug tapes on Mother Savage, that being White Inferno. Yeah. The approach of some of that 90s stuff of yours is is very raw. And hearing this, that you started doing it on a stereo, just hitting pause, screaming, makes a lot of sense to me. It isn't the million electronics recorded to dat of something like Merzbau or the Japanese. There's something very raw about your noise, especially in those early days. Did you continue? Yeah. I didn't use pedals. That makes sense. Yeah, it's all tape distortion. It's all, everything is just cassette distortion in in one way or another. Because I didn't use pedals. I started with cassette tapes. I just, I was very comfortable with what you could achieve with just distorting to tape. So for those, and I think I had a four track for those that the one on Mother Savage Noise. But I also bought a stereo microphone. And my first album, Science Fiction Room Service, is a room recording of me and multiple tape players in a room, like really close to the mic, super loud. So everything is like a live mix of just tapes of you know, oh, mangled wow. noise tape. Okay, because yeah, that one sounds crazy too. And yeah, okay, that makes total sense because I never thought of the, that stuff of yours in those early days as being 
exactly hi-fi or precious and it has this nasty raw quality to it and this all totally makes sense yeah it's all tape stuff i didn't get a pedal until i started performing live so it was all tape and i'm still obsessed with that sort of tape saturation analog feel of cassette tape isn't it isn't a, a compressor it's an absorbent it's horbs sound and i just i think that's it's really beautiful I think just think tape noise is absolutely beautiful. So I was, I think I was probably six years down the line before I even bought my own first pedal. It was, if there's any pedal stuff on my early stuff, it's because I was with somebody who had something like a synth or something like that. But I just, for me, it was the tape was the, the main instrument, the tape recorder. Oh, that's so cool. And when did you first start playing live and how did that first show get set up? I was invited to do something in Oslo and I, this was project name I was using then was, it was not Hermolium, it was Ego Problem. I don't ask me how that came, but I was asked <laughs> to play with Ego Problem in 1995 and I had no idea how to do a live show. Like I have no, how do you perform noise live? Because I'm, I was a creature of the studio. I, I loved the studio space. So I thought, okay, what would I like to see? What would be interesting for me? Okay, so I pre-recorded the whole thing on a DAT tape. So I brought that along, and then I had a friend with me, and he got him up on stage, and he had he had bags of blood under a white shirt. So he started. He had a knife. So he started, you know, cutting himself, <laughs> and and then all you know the bleeding. But he but then he also took. How do you say? Not the laxative, but something that makes you throw up. Oh, we, I'm not, yeah, I, I, yeah, the, I'm not sure. Like something like Ipecac would, something would do like that. that, yeah. So he took that, but he, I instructed him to, to eat red jello also. So the idea was that he would also vomit blood on stage. <laughs> and, then, and, and then I had also, I also made this video of just a collage, but the main attraction of the video was this, if, if you remember a Mondo movie called Shocking Asia, there's oh, yeah. a, a, a sex change operation, which is really quite gruesome and looks more like butchery, especially when it's been copied on VHS for five times. So that was, I had a whole sex change operation of the genitals being cut off. Also, at the same time as my friend standing there on stage and cutting himself and yelling and just screaming, not lyrics, but just in, you know, just words like that, but without being mic'd up. And then we played the that, and I just I stood next to the soundboard and just enjoyed my own my own show. <laughs> it, was, it was great. So I was a director, and you know, the rest of the festival was was some good stuff. Deutsch Nepal played, that oh, was cool. great. Yeah, and but it was a lot of Oslo stuff and some rock bands. So it was I got a lot of weird theirs, but I enjoyed it. This is what I wanted to to see. That's so cool. How did the Project Origami Replica come to be? Good question, because the guy who asked me to do that show was a guy called Tura Bö, and he had a um, he had started in 1991 this this art collective network idea called Origami Republica. And it had all these fractions, like origami, poetica, poetica. It was all very conceptual, and it was like a hundred people. But he was the central, he was the main, he coordinator, as he said himself. And it was inspired by the 
NSK and art art collectives of that time. And and I went to see a show with them in Trondheim, and there was it was Origami Arctica, I think. And they played, and it was really great. And there was a but I didn't get to talk to him. There was a flyer, and it had an address. And he was living in Oslo, and I was in Trondheim. So I wrote to the address asking to buy some tapes and he said, oh, let's trade instead. So we became friends. And then he invited me to do that concert, that infamous concert in Oslo with, with the vomiting and, and sex change operation and all that stuff. And then he moved to Trondheim because his wife got a, a job in Trondheim. So he moved up there. And that time in Norway, you had a military service, but if you refused, you then you get a kind of a community service. I did that at the local cinematheque and I had a lot of time on my hands and he was home. He was a full-time artist. So we just started hanging out and doing stuff together. And any origami replica was supposed to be the noise, power electronics, punk, weird, dada, fraction of the Republica thing. So I, I joined that and we went on tour in Europe with Origami Replica by train. Oh, wow. When you worked in the cinema, were you doing projection? Yeah, I was a film projectionist for 14 months. And then I continued after as a kind of volunteer for the, the Cinematheque. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So your first tour, was that, and that was your first tour, was... With him, because Tuda yeah. had already, he was a bit older than me. So he's he already toured a lot. You would, at that time, would buy an interrail train ticket, which means you could travel for free for a month in Europe. So you could just book gigs and just travel and stay at people's houses. So that's what we did. So I joined his, his joined on his travels and we just got along well and it was great fun. It was crazy too, but it was, we were young and... <laughs> What were the sets like? We did different things. I would, I, I already then I was going, I, I was starting to feel that the, it's great with all the blood and vomiting and that stuff. And we did, a, I did a few more of those type of shows where I had my friend, I also had him like had him naked, but with, with tomato beans rubbed on his body. And then he vomited and he rolled around in the vomit and he cut his hair off and he put it on fire. So I, w- I was instruct stuff like that. And I also started performing my solos with a singer and I showed him Masana videos. I said, can you do something like that? And he, but he, and he was really physical. Like he attacked me on stage and he took like his mic cord around my neck and started fighting. He got, he was, it was pretty silly, but he would hit himself with a microphone really hard. So I searched out these different people and, and I did my, that was my solo show. So that was parallel to joining Tuda and his Origami Replica. How many people were in Origami Replica on this tour? On the first the tour, so it was, it was a few of them actually. It was just me and Tuda and he's, he didn't really want to do the electronics. So he asked me to do it and he would do the, the vocals and screaming. So it was, it was kind of power electronics, but not in the, not in the, Mike Dando condom or White House type of way. Twitter had other ideas and we, we, we didn't really want to do the, all the serial killer and, and we were searching for something else. I was pretty done at that point with the serial killers and that, that stuff. And Twitter definitely was from a different field. He was a, was a poet. He was literary. He, he wrote books and stuff like that. So he wanted just to do the voice and then I did the, the noise. And I could do whatever I, I wanted, basically. And there was a few times where he didn't 
bother to go on stage. So I would do both the noise and the vocals. That was basically perform solo, but you know, at, it's part of his instructions. And you said that you got pedals to do, start performing live. So were you using pedals on this or was it predominantly tape? Yeah, this was both, I, like I had dictaphones and Walkmans and different stuff, Minidisc when that came, but I also had contact microphones. So the first time I actually went on stage was the time when I, told, when I talked about my friend who set his hair on fire and, and rolled around in his vomit. At that time I had a contact microphone and two pedals and I put it on a, a mailbox, a metal mailbox, and I would... The whole show would be, would be me destroying that mailbox and just obliterating it. That was what I played. That was my first time as a musician on stage. <laughs> That's so sick. And after this tour, did you get bit by the live bug? As in, did you really want to start pursuing playing live more? Yeah, I discovered this was a completely different thing. This was completely different to the studio environment. It was a totally different canvas. It it worked on different parameters. It was like a new thing. And and I really enjoyed it. And I, I embraced it. But I realized two things were very different, but that I could work with both formats. That's so sick. And so you're going to continue the label continue putting out rad CDs into the 90s. When did you first come over to the States? Was it not till later or did you have contact in the States? Obviously, you're working with Mother Savage and stuff, but did you come over in the 90s? No, I didn't. I did not go to the States until I think 2001 or something like that. That this was, I, I started Jazz Camera with John Hegra in 1998. And when we first came to the US, it was with Jazz Camera. Gotcha. And how did you see things changing as it moved into the 2000s? Because, you know, you were corresponding in the 80s. You started doing stuff in your bedroom in the early 90s. And now we're moving into a new decade. What for you... What changes did you see and what were you looking for sonically as the, as the years were going on and starting into the 2000s? I was, I was a, I've always been obsessed with music. Even when I listened to death metal, I would still listen to 60s stuff. I, would, I, I always had a very broad interest in music. So throughout the 90s, I was exploring all kinds of things in tandem from improvised music to free jazz, ambient drone, everything. I, w I was, I w I'm always interested in music. And uh, you know, so this was happening at the same time. I guess the line that I've been drawing up now is a little bit of a simplified, a simplified version. But when I met John Hegra, I became more and more interested in this idea of improvisation because he was a guitarist. He was really into noise, but he came, he was an actual musician. With Tura, he Tura was more sort of a conceptual artist, a poet, and a writer and a thinker, and also a sound artist too. But with John, it was all about the the music, and we shared a common love for Japanese noise music. Like he he was a sound engineer when I played in Bergen on the west coast. Of Norway. He was a sound engineer, and he came in a Masana T-shirt. So 
we, yes. <laughs> we, we were instantly friends. At this time, I would also go and see Peter Brutzman when he, he would come to Norway. I would go see things like that. So I also came acquainted with people in the free jazz and improvised music scene and started playing with them quite early on as well. So everything progressed, pro, progressed really fast. You know, I would be, I would, I th- and I think I still am. I'm always doing many things at once. And I, I guess it would be smarter for me to just have focused on one thing, but then it wouldn't be as interesting. Okay. Maybe people figure out later what I was doing, but I just wanted to explore and do different things. One of the early 2000s records that would be around, definitely one that anytime you'd go to someone's house on tour, would, you would certainly see in the stacks is Bring Me the Head of Lasse Marhug. And on <laughs> Peer Pressure Zombie, now that, that's a strange label, right? I don't really know much about that label. I don't either. <laughs> he, he was, I think he worked at the warehouse of Revolver in San Francisco. And I think he did one LP before that. And he just wrote me saying, I would like to do an LP of you. And I did the Bring Me the Heaven of Lasse Marag, which I th- still think is a great title for an album. <laughs> and nobody has, nobody's ever yet to give me, bring me the head of myself. I'm hoping not to be decapitated anytime soon. No, I, yeah, I, I don't know who, he disappeared. I don't think he did much after. I, I, th- I remember him telling me that he worked as a revolver for six months before he realized that the guy and he would meet every day is Seymour Glass, who did Banana Fish. Of course, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it took him, took him half a year to figure out that was Seymour Glass. So, <laughs> so, I don't know. I think amazing. I met the guy once in Boston or something. I forget. I forget. I forget his name. I'm sorry. But he did a great job with, with putting out that LP. I'm super happy with it. That's so great. And yeah, you mentioned Banana Fish. That must have been for you get, getting something like that, getting a, being able to, that probably opened up a lot of contacts to those early Banana Fish, getting those in Norway. Oh yeah. Banana Fish was completely the Bible. That, and that mirrored when I was 14 and I got the death metal scenes and I was just pour over them. When I got Banana Fish and I was, I guess I was 18 or something. And it was the same effect. I was just like, whoa, this is a whole world. And like the CCCC interview and just reading that over and over again. And just fantastic. And I've read about the, the Dead Sea and, and that made a impression. And, and later on, a connection to, to the New Zealand, New Zealand music community. And also Banana Fish, absolutely crucial. And I still get asked by young people like, oh, what books should I read about? noise music to learn, I read Banana Fish. And they go, oh, what books? No, read Banana Fish. That's everything you need to know. Fucking read Banana Fish. That's the history of noise music. It's such a, it's such an important thing. And yeah, anyone who got that when those were coming out, it, it affected everybody. It was so exciting. And also you never knew when a new one was going to come out. When it did, it was just, it was like so exciting. Who's going to be in it? Who's going to do the cover? It's just, it, it was such, and coming with the CD. So it was the full package. Yeah. Yeah. That was amazing. And then Ron Lassard was, I think, mastering the CD or putting it together. And then he talks so much between Classic. the tracks. 
So there's one. Oh, we don't have time for the last two pieces. <laughs> Dude, that's so good. Isn't there one? I, I want to say there's one after maybe a, a drum thing or a jazz thing. Oh, that was like somebody playing drums for kind of like he, he would just. It was again that's that time when you think of Seymour and Ron and the personalities, right? It was such a time of personalities. So everyone had these. Whether or not it's Ron or Seymour or Romer or even someone like Masami, the personalities are so vastly different. And that just led to just more excitement, at least from when we were getting into it and really didn't know any of these people, just reading interviews, hearing the CDs, the wide array of personalities and noise, especially in the 90s, was something that really excited me. Oh, absolutely. No, I feel the same way. And yeah, they was and they were so distinct. Somebody like Ron Lassard, you know, you couldn't think some, you couldn't make it up. It's completely unique character, and I remember going to RRR for the first time, I think two thousand three or something, and we landed. It was Jazz Camera, and we landed in Boston, and we had a gig, in store gig in Lowell at RRR this the same evening. So we were jet lagged as hell. Like we, I, I, I can't remember the gig how it was. But I remember after the gig, I was went out to a, a cash machine because I knew I was in the holiest of the holy That's right. places <laughs> of noise. So I went out to an ATM and I got two hundred dollars, and I just I gave I held it up to Ron and I said, "What do I need? Tell me, what do I need?" So I knew he had rare stuff under the counter, like seven inches that you had to ask for. But he grabbed me with both hands and just took me up the, to his face and said, you don't need anything. <laughs> so, so I, I ended up with nothing. But he still Good took your money. It was okay. Yeah. I, I don't think he took my money, but that was fantastic. So what a guy. Fantastic. No, so all these personalities, it's, it's super interesting that the noise scene of 80s and, and, and the 90s, of course, I can't claim to be any first wave or a second wave or anything. I, I came out of the 90s and there's all this stuff happening in the 80s, but you certainly got a, a taste of it. Those people were still around. They were still doing stuff. So it was a really interesting era. I'm really glad that I got to, I think I'm really glad that I got into noise the time I did. I, I'm really glad of the time um, of the era that I was dealt in a way. And I, I, I'm just, I'm glad I got a taste of the, the pre-internet. So. <clears throat> Talking about around 2002 and 2003, that was that would be when you would end Jazzassin as a label, also. Yeah, I ended Jazzassin maybe 2002, I guess. It's just fizzled out, and and I'm not really one for running a label. I know I'm. I like I like thinking. I like making records. I love making records, but I don't really like selling records. And it was, I was, was losing too much money and I would send stuff off to distributors and then they would have to send me cash or I would get a, like some U.S. distributors would send me a check and there was no way to do to, to cash and a U.S. check in Norway. I was, was just using, I was just losing too much money. And I, I think my motivation for, for studying Pika this later was you know, PayPal and, and online trans transfers became possible. So then I could actually get a little bit of money back. It became easier to sell things. It's about a five-year break between PikaDisc and Jazz Assen, right? Yeah, I, I, did, I think my first release on PikaDisc was a CD box of my tapes from the 90s. 
I sat at that time in 2005, it, it, that was five years after the 90s. It felt like an eternity. So I sat down three weeks and just listened to all the tapes that I, at least that I had in my possession. And I transferred them and I made a selection. And that was the first release on PicoDisc, the, the tapes 1992, 1999. And PicoDisc seemed to not focus on, but you've released a good handful of box sets with the label. Yeah, I was quite early with the box set thing. I did Government Alpha, I did mine, I did Kevin Drum, I did Incapacitance, I've done Witsist and Omit and yeah, different things. Yeah. You mentioned a connection to the New Zealand scene and Omit being one of those. How how the hell did you get a bo- CD box set out of him? <laughs> <laughs> of Omit? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was through, through my friend in New Zealand called Noel Meek who knew him and set up an exhibition of his artworks. So it was through him because it it's really hard to get Clinton to reply to an email. And I was told that he doesn't have email in his house, that he has to go to a library to, to get online. And he does that maybe once a week, but he was working, I, I think in maybe wine business. So then if it was the wrong season, he would be working for two months so you wouldn't get an email. So, it was, so I would write to Noel and he would call Clinton, and then that's how it, we made it happen. It's a, a, an immense box set. I know it took me a minute to track one down just due to the international ordering, and it, it seemed to go fairly quickly. But it was, it, Yeah, it was weird with Omit. I'm a fan, and I, I knew other people who were fans, but when I was putting it out, I just made 300 copies. And then, because, you know, I figured not many people, there's maybe 300 people like me who is interested. Because he played less than 20 shows. He's never played outside of New Zealand or Australia. He's hardly a profile. But it was Bruce Russell of the Dead Sea. He wrote me saying, because he was doing liner notes, he wrote saying, you will be surprised about how many fans Omit has. You will be surprised. Just wait and see. And it's, the thing sold out in three weeks. And I'm, I'm st- still, t- to this day, every month I get an email saying, uh, can, you, can you reprint uh, this, the, the CD box set? And yeah, so Omit, just, but if you listen to the music, of course, he should be world famous. He's an, a really amazing sound artist, but I was still surprised how many people are into Omit. Yeah, I think it was the three CD box on Corpus Hermeticum that, that really introduced me to him and I sure i got that at triple r and yeah then you start realizing that first off you look through all the accompanying materials the artwork the liner notes and then you realize that there's tapes of this stuff and there's more and more material and it does just seem criminally underrated or unobtainable for a lot of the stuff even i think both box sets are quite hard to come by now yeah, I would say not underrated because the people who hear who have heard him, they know. Every if you heard Omit, you'll get it. So it's more that he's over overlooked. Maybe that's maybe a, a better word. Yeah, it's and also everything he's done. You go back like he had his sound down from the beginning, like. A lot of us, we fool around and, and just do strange stuff and just have to fail and to figure things out to to learn. But Omit was just Omit from the beginning. It just exists and he had it fully realized. And all his 90s tapes on Deepskin are just amazing. 
fantastic. The triple CD on Corpus Americum is fantastic, but it was it could have been any of the other tapes. They're just as good. Right, right. Uh, what is it about the box set format that attracted you to to doing so many of them and then putting out these collections by both yourself and other artists? Uh, yeah, it's just a music obsessive in me. I like the, the retro archival aspect of it. And I like putting them together and I like giving, like, how do you preserve the, both that, um, how do you say it, the artwork and you, you need to represent that, but you also have to put it in the historical context. And I like, I like that. It, it was, it, it was more rewarding than, than single CDs. And I've done a lot. I'm, I have also run other labels of not just Hassan and Pika Disc, where I've released Norwegian electronic music of the sixties and seventies. And then you have to deal with composers who are no longer here. So you maybe have to talk to their children or grandchildren. You maybe need to go into the National Archive to, to find old master tapes and, and track things down. And it's just a very interesting process, this going backwards into history, going, looking back into history and then digging up all this stuff and, and finding out this, these stories and, and these lines of, of work that often are hidden. It's great to preserve, especially the Norwegian stuff that you have done, because so many people outside of the country or just who may be unaware of that stuff can get a taste of of the early days of those elect of that of the electronics. Yeah, it's amazing. I was invited to uh, do um, a project. There's a there's an art center in in Oslo that started in the '60s. That, had, that was the main place for earlier electronic music in Norway. And I was invited to do a project there in their archive. And it went so well that they offered me a job and I worked there for nine years. And there I, you go. You should never so, left. They, yeah, I, I, I I'm never here left now. The, yeah. <laughs> I never left their basement, basically. Uh, so I just got along along really well with, with the guy who was working at the music at the music department there. And he's still my friend. And we still run a label, actually, even though we both left have left the art center. But I just we the, one of the things we did was digitize their entire tape archive of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And we would find like there was Stockhausen and there was John Cage and other weird, strange things, more obscure things. And it was just fantastic just going into that world. And I, I, one thing through that sort of connects everything that I do is my love for recorded sound. I love recorded sound. Often I love, I like recorded sound better than how it, originally was i think it's some things are more interesting after recorded because the process of recording of microphones or a, or a line going into a mixer preamp and then to tape or digital or whatever and then the edits and all the decisions that have been made or accidents all these things that colors the recording process and what you end up with i think is endlessly fascinating it's, 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 I view it in the same way as a photography, because photography is also framing. It's a, what you leave out of the frame and what you left with is a two-dimensional thing that describes a three-dimensional situation. So I'm just obsessed with, with recording. And I still am. I still like being in front of a couple of speakers. 
you mentioned working at this space. Was this the Henny Onstad Art Center that you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we had Mersbau there. We had Masami play. It looks like you've done a lot of releases. This is the Prisma Records label that's been archiving this stuff. Exactly. They used to have a label called Prisma back in the, in the 70s and 80s, and we just revived it and asked. First, we funded it ourselves, and then the, the art center started to fund it. And we just we documented things that we had, like we put out a, a CD of Masami. He played, we had a Kurt Schwitters exhibition there. So we flew Masami in from Japan uh-huh. to perform. And in the, in the inside cover, there's a photo of Masami in the Maritzbau of Kurt Schwitter. So it's oh, perfect. Maritzbau in Maritzbau. <laughs> and he looks as happy as he can possibly look. Small smile. No, so we did that. And then we also, as I said, we were digitizing the archives. We find all this stuff that's connected to the art center. So we put out all these different releases connected to the art center. Very cool. For the last dozen or so years, it, it's been very apparent how much the death metal and grindcore zines and of course later banana fish had an impact on you because you've been publishing your own zine personal best yeah yeah exactly and an obviously reference is banana fish but it's also different from banana fish because i'm i'm not from i'm coming from a different place it's, it's so it's not a banana fish copy i think but it came out of this idea that because I did fanzines when I was in as a teenager, but then fanzines you make as 15 is just you just a kid trying to figure shit out. <laughs> and but I thought, okay, how will a fanzine be if I'm when I'm 40? How, how do I make a fanzine you know when I'm old and I, I've done all these weird things and I have this this experience and I know all these people and I've figured things a little, little bit more out. How will a fanzine look like that? So I started personal best. And it's also it also came out of me traveling, touring constantly. And I would have all these interesting conversations with people backstage or on a train or over breakfast or you meet people and just all these people. And I realized that stuff wasn't being documented as well as it was before. That was missing. Everybody was busy making tapes and CDs and CDRs and, and whatnot, but nobody, nobody was making fan scenes no one's making print anymore because they would just go online at these noise boards and they would express themselves and but that would be gone that wasn't edited and it wasn't i felt there was a little bit of a wasted energy so i thought how about if i make it a proper print fan scenes and have real conversations with these people and not approach it as as a as the as a journalist would how about it's just me and this person talking and that's it. And you've allowed, as the reader, you've allowed as the third person to sit with us and, and, and hear us talk about things. So some stuff wouldn't be explained. It would just be, and some stuff would be explained. It was just, I wanted to have it be conversational. What is the process of putting an issue together and generally how long does it take? The, the last issues have taken me three years. <laughs> it's fucking hell. It's terrible. Doing the interviews are always great fun, always enjoyable. And I talk to people and we talk and it's great. But then you, even if you have a great conversation, it doesn't read well if you just transcribe it. You put it on paper, as we say, it just, it looks clumsy and it's hard to read and it doesn't flow. So I transcribe it and then I start to edit and I have to transform it into a written, a conversation that reads well on paper. 
So it's a whole process. And then I let people look at it. And if they want to take something out, they can do it. And also if they want to add something, they can do that too. So it's been a few interviews where people have been very brief, but then they see it and they see, oh, this it has you know, this this is interesting. And then they can just it put more flesh to the bone. And I also scale my own what I say back. So in the in maybe I'll talk a lot as much as the person I'm interviewing, but then I just, I scale it down when it's on the paper. And that works too. It, it, it's, it's not a deceitful thing. It, 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 I think it's, I can just condense my thoughts down to a couple of sentences and then they get more attention and that works. Definitely. We do the same thing too. A lot of times we'll cut our lead into a question because maybe it's something we've repeated a million times, but in order <laughs> to get the answer, we yeah. made a longer question and then we'll cut it just to get to the, to the answer. And, and yeah, absolutely. You know, obviously we understand the interview process and the pros and cons of it and how to try to make it something that's going to be lasting. And when it's in print, it really is lasting even more so than the audio in a way, because you can just, you can open up a magazine all day long, flip through it, read an article a million times. I've, Bet it's rare that someone listens to an episode of a podcast more than once, maybe twice if they want to revisit something. But with a magazine, it's always there for years and years. We can flip open a banana fish right now and read that CCCC article again and get something yeah. new out of it. Where So it's this immutable thing that's so important. So what you're doing by doing this zine is super, super important. And it's something that will last for a long time. Yeah, exactly. And that's my feeling. And if I make this effort and make a print fan scene, and it costs a lot of money, and it's held to the whole editing process and back and forth, and that's it's a lot of work. But I look back at it, and I'm really happy. I'm really happy I've done that, and that I documented these people. And now people are starting passing away. I'm glad that I interviewed Tony Conrad. I'm glad I interviewed Gedalia Tosartes. I'm glad I interviewed Peter Rayberg. Who thought Peter Rayberg wouldn't be here in 2023? It was was a shock. So it's taken on a a, a scope that I didn't anticipate, that it feels more important and it feels really connected to my artistic work also. And this this ideas of networking and the communal aspect of this, this, this music scene that we're in. And I'm sure you've, discovered the same thing doing this podcast. You've talked to hundreds of people now, and it's, it's an incredible, important work that you've done. It's I've listened to a good bunch of them, but there's many I haven't listened to, but I'm really glad that they're there. It's, it's super important what you're doing. Kudos to all of us. <laughs> yeah, well, it's thank you. Yeah. The, it's one of the most important things for us is documenting this stuff. And we learn more about it by talking about it. And that only further fuels the passion, I think, for us and for people who listen and for people who read Personal Best or Banana Fish or whatever. Those were the things that kicked us off on this sort of journey. And back to what Mike was saying, it's funny when you think about a print medium because even with the podcast format, I'm not going to listen to it at 2x to find that one thing that I wanted to grab out that I was trying to reference but if there's a zine, I can go through it and be like, oh, I know somewhere on the third page here they were talking about that one tour that went horribly and that one experience and or recording this album. And you can quickly glance and find those things. It's just a, yeah. such a different presentation of the thing of the same exact conversation, perhaps. But it's just a different way to be able to parse it. And 
all, all of those things I think are valuable. There's something to be said for listening to the long form. And there's something to be said for being able to just flip open a book and kind of scan the page with your finger until you find the thing you were looking to reference right now, which we always yeah. have to do anyway, pulling out the zines. Uh, <laughs> one question, how do people get personal best in the U S what's the best way for, I know we have our listener base is worldwide, but we have a large portion in the U S good question. Who run, who has it now? There's a couple of places Hornlight, record grouch. And I'm trying to remember there's some other places, but I get a lot of direct orders from the U S even, and I'm selling it almost at cost price because I want it to be affordable. And you know, I should also ask that I have been getting some funding to do the magazine from the Norwegian Arts Council. So that's a great thing too. So, but yeah, it's around there. It's out there. Okay, great. And what issue are we at now? Is it number nine? Number nine, number nine, <laughs> number nine. <laughs> yeah, I, I made it number nine. <laughs> excellent, uh, excellent. And I'm working on issue 10. And it's not going to be three years. I promise you that. I have all the interviews. I always have a backlog of a bunch of interviews. I have the one I did now. There was a Russell Haswell interview that was eight years old. <laughs> 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 I wrote to Russell saying, oh, you remember that interview we did? I just transcribed it. You want to have a look at it and maybe let me put it in number nine. And he was fine with it. And I, so they're all making these publications. They become time capsules, but they're actually, a lot of the interviews are already years old before I published them. So they're, they're already time capsules. And I never want people to talk about their latest album. And that's, it's not that kind of a publication that promotes new work and it's not supposed to be contemporary it's about uh, same as what you do now you you ask about people's history where they're coming from their ideas how did they discover this what made them and hopefully a good few funny stories as well you say you love recorded sound and that's something that keeps you going but what as you just mentioned what are your what do you see when you sit down to record a, a a tape, a record, a CD, whatever you're doing, a solo Lasse Marhug recording? What yeah. do you envision? What atmosphere do you set? Where are you actually doing it? What is the process for you mentally, technically everything about recording a solo Lasse Marhug album? Good question. I don't think it actually describes me so much as a person. I, I don't really subscribe to this idea that it's, it's revealing my soul. I think my music is my interests in sounds and how they're put together and my skills of recording them or structuring them, editing, all that, producing them. Um, I think my music represents my sound obsessions. It's the sound that I want to be inside. Basically, this is, I don't have anything beyond that. I don't, and, and I, I, the reason why I felt so, when I discovered noise and I felt so excited by it, not about noise, is that it had good noise for me has this open work quality that you can read it in any different way you like. It's not about something specific, it's like giving this is key, this opportunity to step into something and you can hear whatever you hear. And what it means for me is what it means for me and what it means for you, that's just as valuable. And it's the same with my concerts. They're, they're also, I do them 
how I would like to hear them. And then I have this, this, there's all these people there who will hear it in a different way. And I think that's just as valuable as my reading of them. Yeah. And it's just, I just, it's recorded sound and it just works for me. It just triggers something in me. And I have a very visual perception of sound. I see shapes and colors and it's almost like a kind of a short way to uh, almost like a controlled hallucination in a way like i experience sound in a three-dimensional sense and it's just so much there and the more i work the more i go into recorded sounds the more i play the more i learn the more i discover it just keeps getting bigger and 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 more possibilities opens up yeah it's yeah (laughs) <laughs> and, and you and you and and so much of your work, especially in post two thousands, has been collaborations. It's something I I think of you as a collaborator. There's many albums of you and and another person, multiple people, another project. And I have to assume that every time you do a collaboration, that affects your solo work going forward. You see a new idea that someone else brings to the table that you may apply to yourself. Is that something that you enjoy about collaborating? Good question. I think it's partially because I spent so many years just by myself, doing stuff by myself. So I, and I trust myself and I, I'm really, I'm really self-driven. I I don't need people around me to, to push me to do something. If you stick me somewhere, I'll likely and with a tape recorder, I'll le- likely make something. So I'm very self-driven and se- self-reliant because that's what I that's what I came for. But I really enjoy meeting other people and collaborating on the basis of being so self-driven. What happens when I come with with what I do and it meets somebody else? What happens? And I don't. I try to work with people who have maybe different perspectives than I have. I don't, if somebody's very similar to me, then you know, maybe that's maybe not so interesting. What happens if I play with somebody or I work with somebody who's coming from a very different, different direction and just interesting to, and also that dialogue because all art for me is a form of dialogue. If you read a book, if you listen to a record, if you watch a movie, it's you're engaging in a dialogue with the artist, even though they might not, you've never met them or they might be dead or it's, it's still a, a dialogue. And then, then that makes the idea of collaborating very interesting. You were living in Oslo for a time. You had a studio there, correct? Yeah. Do you still ha- keep that studio now that you're living in the north? No, we, I gave it up. Both me and my partner are from the north. We decided now we're close to, to 50 years old. Maybe it's time to, to move back up north. And it's, we, I had, we had 18 years in Oslo and 10 years in Trondheim. And I had a studio in Oslo for 17 years, which was fantastic. And I don't really miss living in Oslo, but I do miss that space because it was just a fantastic uh, studio. And I had all these interesting people come by and like all these stories and collaborations and, and different things that I did there. But now we're back, we, since two years, we moved to, back to, to Northern Norway. And so in a way, I'm back where I started, <laughs> just by myself. And my studio here is, is much smaller. I, has, I have a lot of gear that I just have to keep in boxes because there's no room for it. And if I, 
I need something, I have to pull it out and put it back in. So it's interesting. I'm having a dialogue with my 15-year-old self again. <laughs> <laughs> I have a, a duo with, uh, with my very good friend, Tommy Keranen from, from Finland. Um, and, uh, you know, Norway, in the northern Norway borders on to Finland. So there's a connection to, from us northern Norwegians. Um, and uh, I'm not a drinker, but uh, my friend Tommy certainly can have a, have a beer uh, or a drink. Uh, and I just got in the habit of uh, taking photos of him uh, peeing <laughs> uh, when there is no toilet available. So I have this whole series. And I think I have... I think I took one of Mikko Aspa when he was, I was think it was in, in London after, uh, was the, the LA FMS thing? Uh, I think it was that, you know, he's pissing in the middle of the street. So one day I will complete my Pissing Finn series and, and I will display it to the world. <laughs> Wonderful. Tell us about Testicle Hazard. You do it with, with Tommy and how that works. Well, Testicle Hazard, I kind of look at it as, as Tommy being the main the main driving force of testicle hazard. And I just show up and play and just enjoy myself because he's always the one who, you know, is, is pushing it. Uh, and, and we started in 2004. And at that point, I wasn't doing so much harsh noise. I was kind of, I wasn't say over it, but I was exploring other things. I started working with uh, improvising musicians and, and my own solo stuff was exploring you know different different things it wasn't such a full-on wall of sound as i would i would be i, I did in the in the 90s but tommy wanted to to do a classic harsh noise duo with me and we started testicle hazard and the name comes from a, a hill close to where tommy lives where he grew up which which translates from finnish to english as testicle hazard so so the name was his idea what is that name in Finnish? I don't know. I don't know. Because Scandinavian languages, which is, you know, Danish, Swedish, and Norwegian, we can understand each other. But Finnish is completely different. I, it's, it's nothing. You know, I can't understand a word of Finnish because it's coming from completely different um, school of language. So I, I wouldn't know. I haven't memorized what testicle hazard is in Finnish, but I'm sure it's something <laughs> interesting, cool sounding. No, I, I love playing in testicle acid. Tommy is, uh, is a very good friend and <laughs> it's an absolute joy. And we play quite long shows. And I, I think we actually now, when we, we were this old, we actually manage, it's quite, it's quite musical. It's full on. It's totally full on. But it actually, it actually, I think we're actually managed to keep it up for 45 minutes. And yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a joy. We don't get to do it that often, but when we do, um, I, I, uh, I treasure it. Uh, one other thing I was requested to ask about is your recent reel to reel release on a Ukrainian label. Yeah. Uh, yes, I, uh, I did a reel to reel release on, uh, this, uh, Ukrainian label called sentimental productions, which is, um, Edvard Sol, who, who also did quasi pop. He, he put it out and came out of. A, sh a series of work that I did that was a, a short film um, and a photo project and also a series of releases on different formats. There was a tape, cassette tape, there was a CD, was a double LP in 20 copies, very limited. And then there was a real, real, it was on different labels. 
Um, and that's that stuff that's on the real to real is only on the real to real. There's there's no digital online version of it. A friend of the podcast said they bought it but don't have a reel to reel to listen to it, so they haven't uh, gotten yeah. to hear it yet. Sorry about that. You have to get a reel to reel to listen to it, <laughs> and it's it's all mangled tape stuff. So it's sort of made to sound like it's a transmission from you know another time or another some somewhere distant. Uh, so it's there's voices from my short film that's sort of mangled in there, and, and yeah, it's it's a nice one. I think I still have a few copies, actually. I love it. We do want to see what you have coming up here in the near future so that people can stay up to date. Do you have albums coming out? Do you have shows coming up? Obviously, you're working on the next issue of the zine. What do you have in the immediate or close to immediate future coming out for people to follow and check out? Yeah, I'm actually going to fold PikaDisc. I think PikaDisc has run its course, and I haven't been doing much in the last years, and so I'm I'm ready to fold that. I'm I'm lousy at running a label. I did a box sets, and that was fun, but I I think that maybe that era is a bit over. So I'm I'm going to start a, a label that's going to release only my own stuff. So that will be archival things, and that will be new things. And I have a whole like I have a bunch of stuff lined up that's coming out in the next years. So that's what I'm working on now. And one of the things I'm, I would like to do is uh, a box set of all the stuff that I, I recorded in my studio in Oslo, stuff that didn't come out. Like I have so many sessions with different people, a lot of recordings that never came out. So I'm working on that. And there's, there'll be a box set with, with our friend John Weiss that's also coming. I'd also want to at least put a vote in for maybe a Herb Mullen box set. So let's, I think that needs to happen. <laughs> yeah, maybe. There's that tape on, um, there's that tape on Slaughter Productions that I think was yeah. pretty good. Yeah, that one, Bolts, that was pretty good. And there's one that came out in Finland in 94, it was Art Hole. I also think that's, that holds up pretty well at, on its own. When I did a tapes box set, I just picked the things that I thought worked. And there's a lot of stuff that I obviously didn't work. Well, maybe a double um, disc then, those two. Maybe a double disc. <laughs> maybe. I'm, I'm also thinking about the, uh, the new forms of free entertainment. That one, I think, should be reissued in some way. Such an important uh, no, disc for me as one of the things I got very early on in buying noise stuff. And I think I wrote to you way, way back then, too, because that record had just amazed me when I heard it. I used to listen to it. I used to listen to it daily, quite honestly. Oh, wow. <laughs> Thank you. I'm happy to hear that. That makes me happy. That's the great thing about these. We put out these things and then 20, 25 years later, you'll be like, oh yeah, I actually listened to that. <laughs> That's amazing because these things that we put out, I'm not saying they're important, but they can be. Sometimes they can be important. Most times they're not, but it doesn't matter. The thing is that these records, and they're very likely to outlive us. Once I'm gone, then there's all these things that I did that's documented. And then people can either throw it in the garbage or maybe in a hundred years, it will mean something else to, to somebody. And they will read something out of it that maybe I didn't foresee. And I think that's also something fascinating with recording and documenting and making publications and doing all this is that you're throwing something out there that's going to outlast you. 
Absolutely. Lassie, this was so awesome. I'm so glad we finally got to talk. What a great history all the way from the Arctic Circle to (laughs) Oslo, to Japan, to the States and everywhere else in between, to a tea shop in China at three in the morning. (laughs) Your travels have taken you many places and all the way back to the Arctic Circle for more noise. So Lassie, thank you so much. This was so great. Hopefully we'll get to hang out in person someday soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for your work with Noise Extra. It's super important what you've done. And I have the greatest respect and admiration for your work. I think it's wonderful. And I'm not just saying it because you've asked me to be on the show, <laughs> but I, I, even if you didn't ever invite me, I still, it's, it's really important work, what you've been doing. I think it's fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you. you very much. And we'll talk to you soon. You have been listening to Noise Extra. Noise Extra is brought to you by Chondritic Sound, a home to noise artists for over 20 years, by Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash noise extra, and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at noise extra, on the web at noiseextra.com, one E in those, and on Twitter at Noise Extra, with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us and to Noise.